Luke chapter 14, verse 1. It happened that when Jesus went into the house of one of the leaders of the Pharisees on the Sabbath to eat bread, they were watching him closely, and he began speaking a parable to the invited guests when he noticed how they had been picking out the places of honor at the table, saying to them, when you're invited by someone to a wedding feast, do not take the place of honor. For someone more distinguished than you may have been invited by him. And he who invited you both will come and say to you, give your place to this man. And then, in disgrace, you proceed to occupy the last place. But when you are invited, go and recline at the last place. So that when the one who has invited you comes, he may say to you, friend, move up higher. Then you will have honor in the sight of all who are at the table with you. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. And he also went on to say to to the one who had invited him, when you give a luncheon or a dinner, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or rich neighbors. Otherwise, they may also invite you in return, and that will be your repayment. But when you give a reception, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed since they do not have the means to repay you, for you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. Now, when one of those who were reclining at the table with him heard this, he said to him, blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. But Jesus said to him, a man was giving a big dinner and he invited many. And at the dinner hour, he sent his slave to say to those who had been invited, Come, for everything is ready now. But they all alike began to make excuses. The first one said to him, I have bought a piece of land and I I need to go out and look at it. Please consider me excused. Another one said, I have bought five yoke of oxen and I am going to try them out. Please consider me excused. And another one said, I have a married wife and for that reason I cannot come. The slave came back and reported this to the master. Then the, the, house of the, the, the head of the household became angry and said to his slave, Go out at once into the streets and lanes of the city and bring in here the poor and crippled and blind and lame. The slave said, Master, what you, have, what you commanded has been done and still there is room. And the master said to the slave, Go out into the highways and along the hedges and compel them to come in so that my house may be filled. For I tell you, none of those men who are invited shall taste of my dinner. What's remarkable to me about this passage is is the bad table manners that Jesus exhibits. I don't know if you realized it, but everything he says in this passage, he says out loud. And there's no mumbling under his breath, kind of silently saying these statements quietly to himself. You know, before the very first course of the meal has been served, he sees the scrambling for the seats, and he, he says out loud, he says, those who take the seats of honor will themselves be humiliated. Yeah. I mean, what do you say to that? When you're at a dinner party, <laughs> I mean, you can imagine there was just this icy, dead silence. Those who take the seats of honor, all of the polite chatter around the table immediately stops. Then uh, 
you probably noticed, I did not read to you verses 2 through 6 in the passage. I, I read verse 1, I skipped to verse 7. But in 2 through 6, it tells us that there was a man there at the, somewhere in the room who was suffering from a terrible medical condition they call dropsy, which means you have this, um, this uh, terrible inflammation of the flesh which makes somebody look hideously disfigured. And Jesus, on the Sabbath day, heals this man, which they completely disapprove of. And then minutes later, he addressed the host of the party. And he says to the host, you know that you, when you throw a dinner party, you really ought to invite the poor, the lame, and the... You can almost imagine that he, he gestures to this, this poor man in the room. Well, at this point, the meal is... Um, is going over like a lead balloon. You know, it, terribly awkward and uncomfortable. Probably the most uncomfortable conver- uh, meal that these people had ever experienced before in their lives. So the peacemaker of the bunch decides that he's going to try and break the tension by saying something which everybody can agree on. And he says this in verse 15. We can agree on this, right? Blessed is everyone who eats bread in the kingdom of God. Like it's kind of, we can all agree on this point, Right? No, Jesus then, it's almost as if he gets more irritated and he tells a third parable, this time about a group of people who are about to miss the kingdom, the the messianic banquet. They're going to miss the banquet entirely. If the most important piece of social etiquette in that day is you never say anything which would offend your host, If the most important piece of social etiquette is don't say anything that will ever offend your host or offend the other people around the table with you, um, what's going on here? Did Mary and Joseph not instruct Jesus? Did they never tell him these things? Why is he so rude? What is he trying to get at? And the answer is this. The Gospel of Luke records more meal scenes like mealtime settings than any of the other Gospels. I think more than any of all the other Gospels combined. And in almost every one of these meal scenes, Jesus does something that to their culture would seem like terrible table manners. He's so rude. In reality, he's trying to point out to the old order that your table manners are the really, yours are the ones that need to be changed. He is turning over the table, so to speak the table of Israel, and saying that now there is a new family being formed, a new family meal which will be centered around me as the host. And there are brand new sets of table manners that you're going to have to learn. I mean, something much more than don't eat with your elbows on the table and and don't talk with your mouth full. Some things that are very hard for you to to learn and to listen to, but nevertheless, uh, I'm going to, to show you what it is. And so we're going to do that this morning by um, primarily looking at the second and the third parables, which he tells here. So let's do that. Okay, those of you who are college students, if I can have your attention, uh, there's a little secret that I want to let you in on, important secret. Did you know that about 80% of the job market out there, 80% of the job market is never posted publicly. The vast majority of hiring that takes place in our world is done through regular, casual conversations 
I got this job opening up. Um, I've got this position. Do you know anybody who would who would be a good job to fill it? Yeah, I know this guy over here. Be, he'd be a great fit. I worked with this person before. Seemed really on top of things. 80% of the job market is is hidden. And it is, it's basically transacted through friends and acquaintances who talk with other trusted friends and acquaintances who either hire those friends and acquaintances or hire the people that those friends and acquaintances refer to them, which it doesn't get posted online, which, which means it's hard, but you have to make relationships. <laughs> you have to make relationships with other adults. You, you have to... Um, socially network with business people because that's ultimately the way you get a job. That's how the system works. You've got to, um, and it's hard because there's not a lot of environments in our society where you can meet with adults. Church is a special place in that regard because it it can, it should happen here. So uh, have to make relationships. Now, now I just told you that. No sooner do I say that than I'm going to tell you why why there's a problem with it. Here's the kicker. If you are a disciple of Jesus Christ, you must never make relationships based on what the other person is going to give you. Never make relations. A disciple of Jesus Christ is not supposed to do business and networking the way the rest of the world does. You say, well, how in the world do I, how do I reach that conclusion from a passage like Luke chapter 14? Well, here's how. What Jesus is doing in this passage, he is, he is criticizing the patronage system. The patronage system. In every community in the Greco-Roman world in the first century, you would have these prominent, wealthy people. We call them patrons. If you wanted to improve your station in life, you tried to get in the good graces of these patrons. And the role of these patrons, they were kind of the gatekeepers, they would introduce you to, they'd open up doors of opportunity for you. They were rich and generous. They would provide to you gifts and loans, political appointments, that sort of thing. Um, the, the patrons would take care of you if you were kind of adopted into their, their network, their favorite, um, among their favorites, and you were expected, the quid pro quo was whenever the patron asked you to do something, you would do it, no questions asked. Whenever the patron called in a favor, you were expected you know, to jump to their bidding. And what ends up happening is the patrons become power brokers in a community where they have, got, they have a lot of people in their debt, and therefore they can call in a lot of favors, and they can get a whole lot done. So the larger your patronage network, the more honor you receive, the, the more things, the requests that you can make, Where did all of these patronage relationships get initiated and cultivated? It turns out they were initiated and cultivated around supper parties, dinner parties. People would throw an expensive dinner party, and that might be the way you honor your patron. That might be the way that you as the patron bring more people into your patronage network. And even though these dinner parties were very expensive, they would always pay off because by basically inviting people to your dinner party, you were securing an invitation to theirs. I mean, it was one of those, you scratch my back, I scratch yours. As long as we, as long as we keep inviting each other to dinner parties, we can do our business transactions there. Um, there's just a cycle of re- reciprocity which took place. 
You know, if I'm understanding, and I'm, okay, I'm no first century historian, but if I'm understanding the social fabric correctly, then access to the dinner parties was essential. That was the way you either made it up the social pecking order or maintained your perch up top. So look with me at verse 12. You know, that's a lot to say, but look with me. Verse 12, when you read it against the backdrop of the patronage system, uh, you are like, wow, this is radical. This could be social and economic suicide. He says that when you give a luncheon or dinner, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or your, your rich neighbors. He's saying, um, no, throw the patronage system in the toilet. If you're going to be my disciple, you have to refuse to do business in the way that the world does business. Uh, Here's how I think it it happens. You and I, I don't know if our parents teach this to us when we're young or if we just pick pick up. uh, I don't know how, but we have this tendency when we walk into a room, we have an ability to filter out people on the basis of who can help me and who cannot. Who are the the powerful? Who are the influential? Who are the wealthy? We have this tendency to filter out people. Who who are the popular? Who can help me gain access to where I want to go? Who can help me advance my career? We have this tendency to cozy up to those people that we think can get us to the next level. And Jesus Christ comes in verse 12 and says, Don't invite your friends and your rich neighbors. No, don't invite them. Now, I realize he is speaking idiomatically. It's an idiomatic phrase. He's not saying that you can never have your parents over to dinner again. Sorry, mom and dad, no more Thanksgiving meals in my house because I'm trying to fulfill Luke chapter 14. No, no, he's he's not saying that, but he is saying something very radical. He is saying If you are my disciple, you must give preferential treatment to those who cannot advance you in the least. You hear that? If you are my disciple, you you must be hospitable towards those people who can never pay you back. The blind, the crippled, the lame, they are never going to invite you back to their party. They are not even part of the system. They don't even know how the... They're not part of the game. They don't know how it's played. There is... You as a Christian have to do business and networking differently. Where you go into a situation just by sheer love, not looking for any return on an an investment or any reciprocity. Does that make sense? I think this is a constant temptation, uh, especially for the business savvy people who are part of... Our congregation. I don't know. I think they maybe teach you this in MBA programs or teach you in this uh, in your you know bachelor's of business administration. They teach you. They train you. When you walk into a room, when you're in the boardroom, when you're given the presentation, you're always supposed to be looking out for what? For the decision makers. You know, figure out who are the decision makers. Who are the threats? You know, who do you have to manage? Who are the allies? And you're, you're always trying to, um, to cater, uh, leverage your charm and your complimentary football tickets on the 50-yard line 
or the dinner to the five-star hotel. You're always trying to leverage, in effect, your hospitality to gain an advantage. And if I'm understanding Jesus Christ correctly, he's saying, not if you're my disciple. We don't play that way. We do not, we should not go into a room and screen for the power of people. We're not the ones who are supposed to go and cozy up to the, the, the movers and the shakers and the people with wealth and influence. If anything, when we're at a dinner, dinner party, we're supposed to go up and speak first to those people we perceive to be least important. That's what Christians are supposed to be known for. Like we go after the wallflower. <laughs> we go after uh, the nobody. We're, we're not the ones who schmooze the people who are higher up the corporate pecking order. No, we use, here's what he's saying. We use all of our charm and hospitality. We use our charm and hospitality to reflect the hospitality of God who gives generously to those who could never pay him back. We use all of our charm and hospitality to reflect the hospitality of God who gives generously to those who could never pay them back. About 1,700 or 1,800 years ago, uh, if you're up on your history, you know that many cities in the Roman Empire were afflicted, terribly afflicted, by a series of plagues. It was in the context there that houses of hospitality were established to care for the sick and the poor, suffering from the plagues. Now, I didn't know this. I heard it for the first time this week. But it so turns out that the first hospital was founded by a Christian woman by the name of Fabiola, a woman of great wealth who sold her possessions to erect a house to care for the sick and needy with her own hands. Did you guys know that? Next time you pass a hospital, that's, that's the genesis. Remember, that's where the word came from. It, it was Christians erecting Hospitalities, houses of hospitality. Now, I know that we tend to associate hospitality with inviting people into our home for a meal. And I, and I think that's, that's probably, when you look at the, the Greek word, it actually says to welcome the stranger. That's what the, the paraphrase of the Greek word for hospitality means. You welcome the stranger into your home. And I think that's, but you can also think of hospitality in a broader sense. Think of Christian hospitality as welcoming people into your life, welcoming people into your life space, and refreshing them with the things that refresh you. Welcome people into your life space and refresh them with the things which refresh you. Um, and that could be your house. It, it could also be your favorite Cuban restaurant <laughs> in town where you know the the owners of the restaurant by their first name. They know you by their first name. You can welcome people into your favorite walk along the green belt or to your favorite place with coffee and carrot cake. Your favorite, you know, you know, all of us have a place where we go to to refresh and recharge our batteries. And in a broad sense, we can think of Christian hospitality in terms of inviting people to go there with us so long as we have no expectation of any return. And that's the key that Jesus is talking about here. You, you take people alongside of you with, without doing the cost-benefit analysis of what am I going to get out of this transaction? How, how can this you know, advance my business career? No, 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 no. If 
My guess is that if Jesus was this bluntly critical of the patronage system in his day, he would likewise be extremely critical of the way that we think of doing business. Right? Um, he, he would he'd be very critical of the way that we think about social networking and you know our attitudes lurking behind our attempts at networking. Don't play by their rules, he says. Use your charm and hospitality to imitate the hospitality of God who gives generously to all with no eye for repayment. That's the first point. Okay, the second point, or we're really looking at the third parable in the passage, which is found in verses 16 through 24. This is called the parable of the Great Supper. It is based on a well-known practice in villages back in their time when you were going to throw a big village banquet or supper, you would send an initial RSVP out to the, to the people you were inviting. And it was based on the RSVP, the number of people who respond to your Evite, that you would know how much meat to slaughter for the feast. Because, I mean, that's the most expensive part, the wine and the meat. So it, you would get these RSVPs back. Two to four guests, and you would slaughter a chicken. Five to eight guests, you would slaughter a duck. 10 to 15 guests, you would slaughter a young goat. 5 to thir- 15 to 35, a sheep. And 35 to 75, a fattened calf. So the, the idea, um, he sends out his first invitation. He gets the RSVPs. He, he makes all of the preparations. He cooks up the meat. Once all of that is fixed, a second invitation goes out, which tells everyone, it's the invitation of notification. Come, please, Come. Everything is prepared. Come and enjoy the feast. Jesus' kingdom ministry on earth is is effectively the second invitation. He is saying, the kingdom of heaven has arrived. Come and enjoy the feast. Come. Um, The banquet is ready. He and his disciples are are going out. And that's the message that they bring to the, the villages of Israel. Unfortunately, it faced, as we know, very stiff opposition from the Sadducees and Pharisees. And it's funny, because in the the parable of the Great Supper, he characterizes their opposition in terms of humorous, lame excuses. Did you catch that? Verse 18. They they all alike began to make excuses. The first one said to the, uh, the, the host of the supper, I bought a piece of land, and I need to go out and look at it. (laughs) Please consider me excused. As if you... As if you buy a piece of land sight unseen. Uh, As if, I mean, even today in rural America, if you're walking along a country lane with the farmer and you were to ask him, so whose land is this? I mean, in Iowa, they know everybody's land, right? They, They know, you don't buy land sight unseen. This guy's a bad liar, verse 19. And then another one said, I have bought five yoke of oxen, and I'm trying. I'm going to go try them out. Please consider me excused. So, yeah, um, you know, I bought a used car, and now, now I'm going to go see if it if it starts. <laughs> verse 21, or verse 20, and another one said, "I have married a wife. For that reason, I cannot come." All of these guys are bad liars. So, verse 21. The slave came back and reported this to his master, and the head of the household becomes angry. And he says, go out into the streets and the lanes of the city and bring in here the poor, the crippled, the blind, and the lame. The poor, the crippled, the blind, and the lame. Isn't that interesting? 
the very people that he's just instructed Christians to practice their hospitality toward. The very people he said, you're supposed to be inviting them into your house already, are the people that are invited to join the Messianic banquet. Like our hospitality is a, a signpost on earth, a sign of the kingdom of God in the Messianic bank, banquet to come. I just thought it was really cool. Verse 22. And then the slave said, well, master, what you've commanded has been done, and still there is room. And the master said to the slave, then go out and get some more. Go out into the highways and along the hedges. In other words, go out to all of the people who have been banished from the village. Go out to the Gentiles. Go out to the socially ostracized. And, and it says, compel them to come in so that my house may be filled. I want you, this is the key in the whole passage. I want you to hear how one New Testament scholar explains the significance of that word, compel. Because it's kind of inter- it's noteworthy that the Pharisees and the Sadducees receive the invitation. They say, well, we don't want to come. And, and God doesn't go out and compel them, but he goes out to these in the hedges, the, the banished, and he does compel them. Why is that? Listen to one New Testament scholar as he explains it. He says, quote, in a Middle Eastern context, the term compel or make them, is another translation, is an acknowledgement that the people of a lower station in life will always refuse the invitation from a superior. This is the universal assumption in even Middle Eastern life today. The host really couldn't be inviting me. No way. It's too good to be true that someone like myself should be invited to a banquet like this. So the person of, of lower rank is, is, is supposed to say, no, sorry, no, not really. I, I couldn't. The cultural expectation is not only that they refuse, but they refuse multiple times. And the, the host of the banquet virtually has to drag the startled guest into his house before he finally realizes he's genuinely invited to the feast. Just four chapters earlier, Jesus Christ in Luke chapter 10 sends out 70 missionary disciples who go out to all the villages of Israel and say, come, the feast is ready. And as you know, the majority of them said, we're not interested. It leads to this question. This is the real question of the of of the, the whole sermon. In the parable of the Great Supper, who are the people that get saved? In the parable of the Great Supper, who are the people who get saved? It's the ones who can't believe they're invited. It's the ones who are astonished that their name would even be on the list. You know, it blows their minds that they would be asked to sit down at the Lord's banqueting table, flabbergasted, dumbfounded, they look around and they say, me? How in the world did you, did you come up with me? It's the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the majority of Israel who had uh, no trouble believing that they were invited. Of course they were going to be there. They took their place at the banqueting table of the of the Messiah, they took that place for granted. The, the only question they were asking is, who gets the best seats? You see, this jockeying for seats at the table, at the meal, at the beginning of the chapter, is really, ep- 
It's a program. It's, it's a reflection of their hearts. Of course, we're going to be invited. It's just who gets to have the best seats? Who gets to sit the closest to the, the host of the ceremony? The closer you are in the seating arrangement, you're the, the most honored of the people there. Pshaw! Of course we'll be at the table. How could there be a meal without us? I'm going to conclude here, and I'm going to conclude here by picking on something we, most of us, almost all of us use. Um, And I'm not saying it's a bad tool. It's it's not bad at all. Um, We all use Facebook. We all use Twitter. Um, Some of us don't use Snapchat and Instagram because that kind of gives away our age, or I think it's the younger generations that are all Snapchatters, and, and they're good tools. I got to thinking about it this week. One of the most fundamental parts of Facebook is you're supposed to regularly provide this thing we call a status update. Status update. How does Webster's define status? Well, the first definition in Webster's Dictionary of English, status is the position of affairs that you occupy at a, particular, at, at a particular time. Status of affairs you occupy at a particular time. Uh, I have teenage girls who are now driving, and they're out late at night. I will sometimes text them, can you give me uh, a status? What is your status? Give me a status update. By that, I mean, where are you at? Who are you with? When are you going to be home? Give me an ETA. When are you going to come back home? Very important as a father of teenage children to have status updates. But there's a second definition of status, which uh, isn't there. According to Webster's, status is also your relative social, professional, and personal standing in a community. What many people are trying to do when they post a status update is not the first definition of the word, but the second We use our feeds, our pics, our funny, witty statements as a way, effectively, to uh, improve our status. It's status, not update, but improvement or refresh. We post a beautiful selfie in order to generate more likes and get more followers and have more of our girlfriends say, oh, you look so pretty in that, you know, to drum up more business. Even though the social conditions in our day are very different than the social conditions were in Jesus' day, you may not see us jockeying around the table for seats, but you will see us on Facebook jockeying for status in the best place. Brothers and sisters, it should not be so with us. I think the coolest, the best, the most long-for status update, which I can think of, would be if you were to do this today. If during the celebration of the Lord's Supper, you pulled out your phone and you clicked a pic of everybody in the room here as the supper is being celebrated. Because you know, don't you, that 
The supper is really, it's the foretaste of the kingdom, the messianic banquet at the end of time. The weekly celebration of the Eucharist in church on Sunday is a preview of the messianic banquet. And in some sense, the best picture of what it's going to look like in the last day. Wouldn't it be cool if you were to take a photo of everybody in the room and you, and you type this into your photo. You tagged it this way. You tagged it with this. Lord, why was I a guest? Why was I, how can I be a guest? Astonishment. Hashtag astonished to be here. It reminds me of the words of Isaac Watts, where we don't sing this hymn. We should sing it more, Susie. I love my favorite words, I think, of all the communion hymns, where he says, while all our hearts and all our songs join to admire the feast, each of us cry with thankful tongues, Lord, why was I a guest? Why was I made to hear thy thy voice and enter while there's room when thousands make a wretched choice and rather starve than come? Why was I a guest? The very next line of the next stanza of Watts' hymn gives the answer to that question. He says, "'Twas thy dear love." "'Twas thy love, that same love, the same love that spread the feast, that sweetly drew us in, else we still refused to taste and perished in our sin. Brothers and sisters, the weekly celebration of the Lord's Supper, the, U- the Eucharist, is our, uh, it's our opportunity to be shocked again and again every seven days that our names would possibly be found on the list. And as we prepare our hearts for the Lord's Supper this morning, let's consider, uh, let's consider that type of status upset, uh, update. Let's consider the kindness of our Lord Jesus Christ, that he went out to the, the hedgeways and to the banished. He went out to, the, to ruffians like us and compelled us to come and sup with him. Amen.